I want to thank Nate and Brett and Judy for the words that they exhorted us with this morning as we came together in Jesus' name to adore Him. And that, that I think helped set our minds on the right thing this morning. Um, I, I really pray this morning you recognize that this gathering is unique. This gathering um, is precious in the sight of God. This morning you just sang songs and prayed with one voice. And those songs and those praises entered into the throne room of God. You were addressing God in thanksgiving this morning. And that is a, <laughs> that's a divine privilege. He's granted that to you. And he granted it to you through the work of his son. And so we should be absolutely amazed that we can gather here in Jesus' name this morning. This is a, a gathering of redeemed people. People that God has chosen to redeem from before the foundation of the world. To display his glory on the earth. Just think about that. You are a divine reflector of the work of Jesus Christ on the earth. That's your calling. That's why you're here this morning. That's what you're doing when you hear the word and then it resonates in your heart and it comes out of you in praise, adoration, and thanksgiving. And when you lovingly fellowship with one another, you exhibit the love that was poured out on you through God's grace in Jesus that united you together with all the saints, not only now, but all the saints throughout eternity. The visible gathering of the church is a precious gift. You are ambassadors, even this morning as we gather in a building where the world doesn't see us and the world is not a part of this service. It cannot be a part of this service. It is separated because of the sin that lies in it. But the world sees you because the world sees the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life when you leave this building and you walk amidst sinners. And they have no idea what you have in you. They have no idea of the power that resides in you until you share that with them through your actions and through your words. And then they see something divine and they, they wonder and they come to you and they say, tell me about this hope that resides in your heart. Why is it that you can face trauma, struggles, grief with an abiding hope, an abiding joy? How is this possible? Don't you know that this life is hard and bad, and we have to say, yes, we know that. But we have an eternal hope that this life is temporal, and yet we have an eternal home in heaven, and Jesus came here to make it accessible to us through his sacrifice. That's, that's why we're here this morning, to give him thanks for that, and to rejoice, and this morning in particular, to rejoice in his church. The church is a gift. You are gifts given to one another by Jesus, by the Father, by the Spirit, united in that triune love that they have for one another. You have been given that. You've been given that privilege to be a part of that triune love and share that with one another here in the church gathered this morning. This is a special time. I just want you to appreciate what Nate said and what Judy and Brett did a minute ago. When they lead you, that's what they're doing. They're leading you 
They're pointing you in the right direction, the direction that the world wanted to drag you away from all week, and now you're being drawn back to your rock, your strength, and your comfort so that you can give Him the praise He deserves this morning in the church and through the church. Let's give thanks to Him again together corporately as the church of Jesus Christ this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus through his merits, through his perfect, righteous, holy, sacrificial work. And we come to you through the power of the Holy Spirit who quickens us and convicts us of sin and righteousness and shows us the judgment that has now passed from us because it fell upon Jesus. We thank you, our God, for allowing us the privilege to gather with the saints and worship you corporately this morning. Your church, your blood-bought church, is here this morning to revere you, to honor you as we gather to rejoice in what you have done in this corporate body, this local church, and what you're doing in our church, and what you will do in the future through our church, which is actually your church, but you allow us the privilege of being a part of it here locally. We thank you for the church. We pray that your blessing would abide on this church and that through the church, Jesus would be magnified in Ada. And I pray you'd bless Sovereign Grace with that privilege, each and every one here. I pray that you would sanctify hearts this morning. I pray that if there are distractions because of sin, because of anything hidden in our hearts, I pray that you would expose it, reveal it, wash it clean, and let the church of God rejoice at your forgiveness and your unity and your grace that is brought to us through Christ. Be glorified, I pray, this morning in Jesus' name. I uh, have, a, have a different direction we're going today in particular uh, because I have a uh, serious confession to make to you this morning. About three years ago, God did a, a miracle in my life. God called me to be a part of a miraculous work. He called me to be a part of a work that, that he ordained before the foundation of the world. And that was the planting of his church in Ada. The planting of Sovereign Grace Bible Church. We, we celebrate three years this month of his work. Three years ago, he did this. And, and I just want you to, to appreciate what he has done And I know you do, but I I want to remind you how we can appreciate it, why we should appreciate it. It is the work of God that you are now benefiting from this morning. And I want you to love that work. I want you to know that I love this work. I love Christ's church. I love pastoring in Christ's church, pastoring Christ's people. I love it. I love serving you as your pastor, as a pastor in this church. It is my privilege to serve you. I would rather be here than in any other place or any other arena in the world. I love John MacArthur's church, but I would rather be here with you. You're the church God has allowed me to serve. Nate and I count this a divine privilege and a divine blessing. My wife and my family count this to be a joy of our life. It is the highlight of our week, every week when we gather with you, when we hear from you on on a weekday from your phone calls or text messages or whatever it may be, it's a privilege to us to be able to serve you in any way possible. 
It's a privilege for me to observe God's evident grace in your lives, working together for His glory and for the good of one another in this church. It is, it is evidence that He is alive. He is working in your heart. You are, you are giving evidence to His divine promise that He would never leave us and never forsake us, that He would dwell with us through the church. You're the hands and the feet of Christ extended to one another. And I'm thankful for that this morning. I'm thankful that we can celebrate a three-year anniversary. That's, that's amazing. And it, I'm excited in this celebration that we can look forward to more future blessings as we walk faithfully in His Word together. And I want to share with you some, some reasons why I'm excited about the church. And I just want to simply, if you will, this morning, allow you to walk with me pastorally through my heart in a somewhat simple and, I hope, profound study of the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of the ecclesia or the ecclesiology that God has given us through His Word. I want to submit to you four reasons why we should all love Jesus' church, Christ's church. I think we should look at these four reasons and we should be excited because within these four reasons, I think you can see that God is going to work a miraculous work in your midst in the future. In the future, He is going to use you here. And the future could be when you walk out of the building today. He's going to use you to magnify His worth in the world. That's the future grace that you look forward to as a church. You, you will be His people set apart to magnify His name. That's a promise that He gives to His church. So I want us to look at why we should love the church this morning. First, we we should love the church because, number one, the church is built by God the Son on earth. On earth. Christ came to the earth to accomplish this work. Christ sacrificed a time that he could have spent in perfection and in complete comfort away from this defiled earth with his Father. Yet he chose willingly to come into this earth and and suffer as a servant to build his church, to set apart his people for the glory of his Father's name. In the Old Testament, God's glory was manifest someplace. We all know where that was manifest. It was manifest in the temple or in the tabernacle. But in the New Testament, that's not where the glory resides. It doesn't reside in a building. The glory of God now resides in His people. You are the church, not this building. The building is our container that allows us to come together safely. But this church that he is talking about when he comes to build. It is not an edifice. It is a people. In the New Testament, the glory of God is in the church. That's where God's glory dwells, and it's where God's glory is seen on the earth. It's where it's displayed on the earth since Christ has ascended. You are a people, according to what Scripture says in Peter. And we'll look at this in 1 Peter 2. You are a people that are chosen out by God to be a temple. You are a living temple. The the difference between the temple in the Old Testament and the temple in the New Testament is we carry the glory wherever we go. 
In the Old Testament, people had to come to the temple. We take the temple of God to men so they may behold the glory of our King. You are a spiritual building, according to what it says in 1 Peter 2, 4-5. I just want to take you through this study and help you build a good ecclesiology, a good doctrine of the church this morning. You, the church, individually and here corporately gathered, are the spiritual building that God has designed through Christ's work. Look what it says in 1 Peter 2, 4. 1 Peter 2, 4. It says, As you come to Him, a living stone, speaking of Jesus, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you, speaking of the church, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 5 says, you are stones, but you're stones that are alive. You're stones that are placed in the body of Christ as God sees fit. You're built up together, linked together as living stones in a spiritual house. And notice it says that you're not a holy priest You're a holy priesthood, a gathered priesthood, a body of priests gathered together to do something, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And we do that corporately when we gather as the body of Christ. But then, not only that, not only that, we don't just do it corporately. We take those offerings out into the world individually when we live for the glory of God, when we honor His name, when we testify to His grace, when we witness to the lost, we are offering spiritual sacrifices of praise to God. The Bible goes on to tell us that the church is not just a spiritual building, it is a dwelling place. It is where the Spirit Himself abides. We are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 3, turn there with me. 1 Corinthians 3, 16. 3.16 and 17 tells us that we are the dwelling place of God, the Holy Spirit. He says here, Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. You are the place that was A type and shadow of this in the Old Testament, you are are what the Old Testament was pointing to in the temple. You are the place where the glory of God, the Spirit of God Himself abides. And people see the power of our God through the church. 2 Corinthians 6.16 also tells us this. Look at that verse with me this morning. It again speaks of us, the church, being the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And when I speak of the church, I'm talking about the ecclesia, the called out people of God, those who are truly called by God to salvation by His sovereign grace. Those people who are called by God will abide in the gathered, visible church. Let me just say this. If you tell me or someone tells me that they love Jesus, but they don't love the church, let me be so bold to submit to you that they don't love Jesus who died for His church. And loved it so much that he gave his life up for it. 
The visible church may have tares in it, but it will also have those who are truly elect. They will gather to praise their God, to grow in the grace and knowledge of God together because the Spirit of God unites them, draws them to worship Him, draws them to give Him glory. 6.16 says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. When the temple of the living God is exposed to sin, it is repulsed. You as a Christian are repulsed by sin. You want to turn from that because you have the spirit of the living God abiding in you. You are a sacred place, if you will. God has set you apart. He has sanctified you by the power of the Spirit, separated you from the world, so that through you, His glory will be manifest in the world. See, the church is to look distinct, different from the world. There is a marked difference. We have something in us, like what Paul spoke about in Romans 7. We have this desire to do good. We have this love for the law of God and holiness And then we have this flesh that wants to battle that love that we have within us. But nonetheless, a true Christian, the true church, will long for righteousness, holiness, purity, and whatever would please God and bring Him glory. That's the mark of the church. That's why we don't have highway to hell playing on a Sunday morning. And instead, we're singing about beholding our God, high and lifted up, center and seated at the center of all praise and glory. God's glory is seen on the earth when His church gathers corporately. And you hear God's word and you respond to God's word in worship, adoration, and praise. When you read Colossians 3, I think it's 16 and 17, it talks about what happens when you are filled with the word of Christ. You will sing psalms and spiritual songs and you will praise God and you will glorify God as the church. That's how you respond. The way you you know someone is is walking in love with God and in a relationship with God is when they hear the word and it resonates in their soul and it convicts them of sin and it turns them to repent and rejoice in God's forgiveness that comes through Christ. And they sing about it. They talk about it. They fellowship with you about it. And they love to hear it. That brings glory to God because the world doesn't do that. It it, it shows that we are distinct. We are His elect. We are His chosen people. We are living stones set apart to magnify His holiness. We're not perfect. The church isn't perfect. The church is a mess because of the flesh. We struggle with sin. We struggle with the battle that, that lies within us between the heart and the flesh. And yet, nonetheless, we know that God is even at work there in His Spirit sanctifying us progressively, working to bring glory to His name through us as we're transformed from one degree of glory to the next, according to 2 Corinthians 13, or 3.18, I'm sorry. Christ designed the church, and that's, that's why we should love it. Christ designed the church Himself, so that His Spirit may dwell in us and reflect His glory on the earth. Look with me at Ephesians 2 to see that this morning. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 19. 2, 19 says this. 
So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the oikos of God, the household of God, the family of God. You're not strangers anymore. You're family. You're part of God's family. And we know that we're part of God's family because we were adopted by God's grace through the work of Jesus. It says that you're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. See, though the church isn't perfect, the Spirit of God dwelling in us is progressively transforming us, conforming us to the image of the one who saved us. The one who saved us is Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone. He is the, the, the building block of the church, if you will, that we're built upon. That One day will actually transform all of us completely. But he's doing that progressively right now in the church. He does this in us. He designs the church this way so that he could be glorified in our transformation, not just in our instant salvation. See, progressive sanctification brings God glory because it shows that God is alive and at work in his saints, purifying us, changing us in ways that we couldn't change ourselves. We now long for the things that God longs for. We now hate the things that we used to love. Well, how did that happen? There was a transformation that took place. We were justified. We were declared righteous by God's sovereign grace. And that transformed us because now His Spirit dwells in us to reflect His glory on the earth through the church as we're being changed from one degree of glory to the next. I find that it would be difficult, if not impossible, for me to actually emphasize to you how important the church truly is to God. I, I, I could write notes and write more notes, and I could never really completely, completely qualify how important the church is to God to you this morning. I can't. God would send His Son to bleed and die for the church? How do you, how do you qualify that? How do you say how important that is to God? I can't say that, but what I can say and what I do know is I know, I know one thing about God's building of the church through the work of His Son. God will not stop building His church for His own glory until all of His saints come in. He will not stop. He will not stop from building this glorious temple that is reserved for His glory. He will not stop working and He will secure all that He calls to bring into it and they will never be destroyed. He will never lose one of them because Jesus built it through his own blood. Jesus designed it, Jesus perfected it, and Jesus will keep it. God the Son, Jesus Christ, said he would build an indestructible church and the gates of Hades, the gates of death, the judgment of death would not prevail against it. Look what Matthew 16 says. Matthew 16, 15. This is Peter's great confession that Jesus is the Messiah. That, that confession we know came from the Holy Spirit who illuminated Simon Peter to, to say this. But in six, or 16, 15, it says, He said to them, Jesus speaking to his disciples, he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Messiah or Christ, 
the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, or Hades, shall not prevail against it. Against it. He didn't build a church on Peter. He wasn't the rock. He was the little stone in the church. He's talking about this confession that Peter made. That Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he said, on that truth, I will build my church and nothing can stop it. Death won't stop it. It will go forward. There is no judgment for those who have been saved by God's grace through Christ's work. There is no way that hell and death can stop it. The church will persevere. It is indestructible because Jesus designed it that way. He designed it that way so that it could actually reflect him for eternity. What's interesting to me is when you study this out a little bit, you see that in this text even right here, Jesus, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of the living God, is personally guaranteeing that the gates of hell will not prevail against his people. Jesus, in other words, is saying, I will not lose anyone that I died for. None. The Bible tells us that the church is so indestructible. (laughs) This is amazing. The Bible tells us the church is so indestructible that your names, the names of all those that Jesus died for, were, were written before the foundation of the earth in the Lamb's book of life. Your names were already written before the world was created. The promise was made before there was creation. That's how secure and indestructible his church is. His church will be saved and brought to glory. His saints will persevere to the end because God's power is persevering in them. Before the foundation of the world, the names of all those that Christ died for were written down in his book. Let me show you that. Revelation 13. Matter of fact, Hold Revelation. Go to Philippians. I'll just make a point here as we're going to Revelation. Philippians, in a very somewhat, I think, almost obscure passage, 4.3. Speaking of a, a dispute between two women, the Apostle Paul gives some instructions here to the pastor of this church at Philippi. He says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are, are in the book of life. They are already written in the book of life. They are in the book of life. They will not be lost either. Look what it says in Revelation about this. Revelation 13. This shows you how indestructible the church is. This shows you the design that God has planned before the foundation of the world to redeem his people. It is, it is secure it is, it is, like I said, indestructible. Revelation 13, 8. It says, All who dwell on the earth or on earth will worship this beast. Okay, these are the people who are left during this horrendous t- time of tribulation. They will worship it. Everyone will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Look at 17, 8 of Revelation. You see it again there. 17.8 The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit 
and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. The names are written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. That, that tells me a lot about the nature of the church that Christ builds. Saints, this means that all those Jesus died for will be raised up. They will inherit eternal life. Everyone that Jesus dies for will be in heaven. His people will be saved from their sins, according to what Matthew says. All those Christ died for will persevere on earth even until Christ comes to bring them home to heaven. That we are assured of, according to this text, according to these truths. That's why I love the church. The church is a testimony to that power, to his design, the design that shows that the church will persevere. How long has the church been here? Over 2,000 years. It's been persevering in the face of much trial and tribulation, in the face of persecution, the church will thrive. In China, the church grows. The church will persevere because that's Jesus' design. He built her. He loves her. He dies for her. He cleanses her. He promises to take her home one day. She is the bride of Christ. You think he's going to lose his bride? He's not going to lose his bride. He values his bride because his bride reflects his power to cleanse, his power to choose, and to give them something they don't deserve. That's why in Ephesians 5 it says that he washes her with his word to cleanse her. He puts great value on his church. I was thinking about an illustration of, of how we value things, and I, I was reminded by an illustration I'd heard in the past. And I, I'd heard a guy talk about how he, he had a really nice fountain pen and he held it up before a group of people and he said how much do you think this pen is worth and they said well I would say it's probably about a ten dollar pen maybe twenty he said well let me tell you what this some history about this pen let me tell you let me tell you who owns it or who owned it this pen was used to write the institutes of the Christian religion by John Calvin that pen went up exponentially in value because it belonged to John Calvin, the great theologian. How much is the church worth? It belonged to Jesus. He paid for it with his blood. Can we put a number on that? You think he's going to lose that? He's not going to lose one. Everyone he dies for will be raised up. Everyone he raises up will be glorified. They will be sanctified between then and now. He will bring about his work in the saints, in the church, that he intended from before the foundation of the world. So secondly, I think we should love the church because the church is the evidence of God's sovereign power on the earth. You know, it's easy to profess that God's sovereign because he created the world and we can't figure out how that would be possible. So we, there's a sovereign, powerful God out there somewhere. But God in his mercy has actually gave us an illustration of his power on earth through the church. He exhibits sovereign power through you. You're a testimony on earth of his sovereignty, of his authority, his power. We can see that in John. John's gospel, John 6, 37. 
Look at this power that's exhibited here and made manifest in the saints. This is a power that can overcome the rebellious, dead, depraved heart of man. This is a power that can actually give life to the dead. It can actually draw those from the grave who could not raise up on their own. And he does that to all those he redeems. No one is here because they chose Jesus. You're here because Jesus chose you when you were dead in your sins and trespasses. And you, you were drawn to him by God the Father's sovereign power, sovereign grace. 637 says, <laughs> just, uh, this is great. All, how many? Every single one that the Father gives me. All that the Father gives me will come. Doesn't say they might come. Doesn't say they can come. It says that they will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Well, the dilemma for man is we're dead spiritually unless God does something to us supernaturally. And that's what he does in his sovereign grace. And those who are drawn to him will come to him, and they will never be cast out from him. Verse 38 says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. But the will of the one who sent him was to redeem a people that would glorify his name in the earth and for eternity. So Jesus says, They will come, I will keep them, and I will glorify God and do his will. Verse 39 says, And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes, trusts in him, should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That is a pretty secure promise. All those that are brought to him by the Father will be kept by him. They will be raised up on the last day because he died for them specifically. He atoned for those people, for all their sins. He didn't make salvation possible. He made it a secure promise. He forgave us of all of our sins and brought us in by God's sovereign power. That's confirmed to us in John 17, in Jesus' own high priestly prayer, John 17, 24. This this text here confirms that the sovereign power of God secures the people that he will give to the Son. This, This actually confirms this. There is a sovereign power of God at work securing a people that are given to the Son by the Father and all those that Christ died for will see His glory. That is a promise. That is His petition and His Father will answer it because His Father is the one who gave Him the children. 17.24 says, Father, I desire, that's a big desire. This is the desire of God the Son, the Savior of man. I desire that they also, whom you have given me, those that he had been given, may be with me. Those that are given to Jesus by the Father, he says, I want them to be with me. You think the Father's going to turn him down? Especially since the fact that Jesus died for them on the cross to pay their penalty? 
He says, I want them to be with me where I am so they can see my glory, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. He wants them to see his glory. He died for them so they will see his glory, and he is petitioning his Father to make this happen. And church, it happens. It will happen. And we will be with those that Jesus has redeemed and the Father has given to him for all eternity, praising him for our salvation, taking no credit for it whatsoever. All glory to God as evidence that he works powerfully on the earth through his church, saving us, keeping us. All those people, it's interesting to me, kind of another obscure text you might not have ever looked at in, in Titus 1, in Titus 1, 2. It's interesting that that same people group that Jesus is talking about, those sinners that are chosen by God, set apart by God's <laughs> sovereign grace and Jesus' sacrificial work and the Holy Spirit's sanctifying power, those people are actually promised to Jesus by God the Father before time began, before creation. And Titus 1-2 tells us that, gives us a glimpse of that. Well, let me back up to verse 1 just to make it a little easier. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Well, the question in your mind ought to be, who did he promise if it was before the ages began? So who does the Father promise this, this great elect group of people? He's promising the Son that he will bring his people to salvation, and he will even provide servants to teach them and to help them grow in sanctification. Servants like the Apostle Paul. The promise was made to Jesus before creation. In the triune council of God, they covenanted together to bring about our salvation for his own glory and for our good. That just tells me Jesus is going to get his bride. He will get his bride. He will get all that he died for. All the redeemed will come to him because that is what the Father has promised. Every single person Jesus dies for, will be given salvation. They will be given the gift of faith. They will be given forgiveness of their sins. They will be declared righteous in God's sight, all due to God's sovereign power that's manifest on the earth. That's amazing. And that's humbling. That's why we don't boast in our salvation. And that is why we praise God for this sovereign institution called the church. The church actually gets to put his sovereign work on display. It shows that he keeps his promise to his son. His redeemed will come in. His redeemed will be sanctified. His redeemed will be glorified one day according to his sovereign power and will. And the good news for me and you is this. Um, not only that, we're secured between the time he, we meet him and the time he saves us. We're secured by his sovereign love in the midst of this power. That love is caring for us and calling us to care for one another. And that love is also promising us that nothing can separate us from him for eternity. No one will be plucked out of his hand or destroyed. According to Romans 8, go there with me. Romans 8, 31. Now, this is a great promise. This is part of the promise that the Father makes to the Son. This is the promise that you and I benefit from. 
This is the promise that actually should motivate you to rejoice in the church with one another because God's doing this work in all of us. And we're here together, united in God's love. Look what it says in 8.31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge or any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand, the place of authority, the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are secured by His sovereign power. We're secured by Him for eternity and presently. And again, this, this, this opens your eyes to the reality that it's God who called you, it's God who is keeping you, it's God who will promise you glory in the future, and God is going to do this through his love for you, not because that you're, you are so holy on your own. We're not better than the unbeliever to our left or to our right. We're not better than our unbelieving neighbors. We are graced by God's mercy, and that's all there is to this. We deserve hell and separation. We deserve his wrath for all eternity. But instead, in love, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through the death of his son. It's not because we're better, smarter, more educated, more religious. It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with his sovereign power and grace. Really, if you, if you backed up in Romans just a little bit, you would see that it's not only that we don't get plucked out of God's hand, it actually is telling us a little further up in 29 that all saints, every saint that dies in Christ will be justified, will be sanctified, will be glorified. That is part of your salvation. When I mean died with Christ, I mean when you died with Christ on that cross, when you believed in Christ, when you were crucified with Christ, and now you no longer live it, it's Christ who lives in you. You were justified at that moment. You were declared as righteous as Jesus in God the Father's sight. And then from that point forward, you are being sanctified as a testimony that he is not only actively saving you, he is actively working in you to sanctify you, set you apart, and one day he will actively transform you and glorify you in heaven. All of that is of grace. All of that is due to God's sovereign power. It's not of you. You didn't justify yourself. Matter of fact, you're not sanctifying yourself. Though you work in sanctification, but it's because the Spirit works in you to do God's will, giving you a desire for holiness. Matter of fact, if you go up to 27, it says that it's the Spirit who does this. Uh, 8.27 says, And he who searches hearts knows that what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit 
intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, that's because God first loved them, we know that, all things work together for good for those who are called, that's elect. In the Greek, it's those who are called sovereignly, those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And all those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he has also glorified. You are saved by sovereign power. You are kept by sovereign power. And you will be glorified by sovereign power. And that power is displayed on the earth through the church as we are being conformed to the image of Christ by one degree of glory to the next. And what I mean by that is the more information that you absorb in your heart through the Word of God and the Spirit who illuminates, the more you will see the glory of His holiness and the more you will hate your sin and the more you will walk according to His will. And that transformation is the evidence that God's power is alive and well on the earth. That was the second reason we should love the church. It it gives glory to God, His power. The third reason we should love the church is because that transformation was a costly transformation. It cost Jesus everything to give you this great transformation. So we should love the church because it is the most valuable gift this earth has ever received. The church is the most valuable gift on earth because it was purchased by Christ himself. And by the way, if the church is that precious, then the way we treat one another ought to be precious too. If we call the church precious to us, if we say the church is precious to Jesus, that it's precious enough for him to die for it, to purchase it, to redeem it, then we ought to have that attitude toward one another also. We ought to value each person in the church as a precious gift from God. They belong to Jesus. Don't mistreat them. That's Jesus' child. Don't harbor bitterness. Don't be angry without cause. Don't Don't sin against your brother by putting a stumbling block in front of him. Work together to magnify the gift that Jesus gave to us, which is unity in the church. It's a valuable gift. The church is a valuable gift. And so you need to ask the question, how valuable is the church? And I was thinking about that. How valuable, how could, again, how could we quantify the value of the church? Well, I think the only way we could do this is just think that only... God himself could afford to purchase her. There's no amount of money, no amount of silver and gold that could purchase your salvation. Only God has the means to save you in his son that can actually redeem you. And he can actually give his son to you as a gift to purchase you out of that sin slave market that you were born in. The price of your salvation, the price of the church was the suffering and cursing of Jesus on the cross in our place. That's the value. That's the price that was placed on your redemption. It was Jesus' blood. 1 Peter 1, 18 shows us this. He says, Knowing that you were ransomed or redeemed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
Just an interesting note in 20, it says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. I would say the logos of God. Jesus Christ purchased you so that you could actually magnify him in the church through your love toward one another. He purchased you with his priceless blood. He was willing to redeem you with his own blood so that he could actually cleanse you and make you a beautiful spotless bride. And that he, he gave his own blood so that he could actually lay the foundation of this church that we are in. You realize Jesus is the cornerstone. And that cornerstone was, was mounted in blood to secure you, his own blood. And I know some of you got this email from me this week, and I hope you read it, but if you didn't, I'm going to read it to you anyway, because I want you to hear how Spurgeon put it. Spurgeon said this about Jesus building his church through his sacrifice. He said, I see that foundation stone laid. Is there singing at the laying of it? No. There is weeping there. The angels gathered round at the laying of his first stone, this first stone, And look, ye men, and wonder, the angels weep. The harps of heaven are clothed in sackcloth, and no song is heard. They sang together and shouted for joy when the world was made. Why shout they not now? Look ye, hear, and see the reason. That stone is embedded in blood. That cornerstone must lie nowhere else but in its own gore. The vermilion cement drawn from his own sacred veins must embed it. And there he lies, the first stone of the divine edifice. How could we not love the church if Jesus would give his life to purchase it? How could we not love the church if Jesus designed it in such a way that it would ensure our salvation? God chose us out through the church being faithful to proclaim the truth about Jesus. That's why he sent out his disciples. Church doesn't save you, but the ministry of the church leads you to the gospel of salvation where God saves sinners through the exaltation of his son. That's the fourth reason we should love the church. We should love the church because, number four, the church displays the glory of heaven on earth. That was God's ultimate design. He's going to do that on a new earth one day. In a new heaven, and a new earth, there's going to be complete God-exalting worship and praise. And between that time and now, again, that should be happening here when we gather corporately as Christ's body. The church displays the glory of heaven. When the church gathers, it displays basically the will of God in heaven. Isn't that what we pray for? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We want his will to come on earth as it is in heaven, right? In heaven, God wills that creation will worship him, all of creation. And it does. 
If you look at heaven, look into the, the realm of heaven through Scripture, you see everything worshiping God. In heaven, God wills that Jesus should be exalted and at the center of all praise and adoration. And we see that in Scripture as well. In heaven, God wills that there would be not only the worship of Him and the exaltation of Christ, but there would also be holy fellowship with the saints, those He has redeemed from all eternity. In heaven, the Bible tells us that there is constant worship of God. Worship is is simply this. Worship is giving God His worth. It's talking about His worthiness. Worship is the constant response of God's people when they come in contact with God's glory and God's holiness. We see that throughout Scripture. That is what's happening in heaven continually. It's just amazing when you look into the the Scriptures to see glimpses of heaven. What you see there is this. You see God and all of heaven are God-centered. Everything in heaven is theocentric or theocentric. Everything is God-focused, God-centered. And that church... That church should give us a glimpse of what our church services should look like. It's not man-centered. Worship isn't about us. Worship is about Jesus. It's Christ-esteem, not self-esteem. That's why we're here, to esteem our Savior, because that's what they do in heaven. We want God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we do. We worship Him according to His will, according to His word. That's what we do when we come here gathering together corporately. We are to reflect heaven's glory on earth. If you turn with me to Isaiah, I'm going to give you some glimpses of what heaven looks like, what goes on in heaven. In heaven, and what needs to be reflected here on earth is this. There are praises, continual praises and adoration and devotion to God continually for eternity. That's what's going on there. We see a glimpse of that here in Isaiah 6 and his vision that he sees when he looks into glory. Look what it says in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died. Now understand this. Let me set this up just a little bit. This king had been king for lifetimes. Okay, I mean, he'd been king for so many years, nobody knew there was another king. Okay, they always thought he, they were just born with this king. And all of a sudden, this king dies. And this king was called a lord. And so Isaiah's wording here is very intentional. In the year that the Lord Uzziah died, okay, that's kind of what he's getting at. I saw the real Lord. That's what he's getting at. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of angels, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. This is the trihagion. This is a praise to the thrice holy God. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Hmm. That's what's going on in heaven. 
That's what should be going on here when we gather. Do you recognize this is the same trihagion, it's the same thrice holy God that we are coming to exalt today? Those songs aren't an exercise for us as Christians that we do as a routine. It is to open our eyes to the reality that we are addressing a thrice holy God. We are coming before Him to give Him praise and adoration. And we need to prepare our hearts, humble our hearts to come before Him with thanksgiving for our salvation. And what's interesting in this this little passage here is basically Isaiah makes a point that everything is centered on God. The angels are centered on God. These angels do not ever touch the ground. Everything around them is holy. And what's interesting is they're holy too. But they can't even behold Him fully. They cover themselves. And they fly and they declare He's holy. And you know what? Praise in heaven will not get old. These angels have been doing this since the creation of man. And they will do this for eternity. And it never says in Scripture that they get weary. I believe every time they make a round, they go around his presence, around his throne, I believe they come back and say, there he is again. There he is. God, oh, you're holy, holy, holy. And church, that's the way we should feel when we hear his word proclaimed, when we sing his praises. When we gather together corporately, we're gathering in his presence. He is holy. And church, we're like Isaiah. We're not. Yes, we're justified. That's true. But I'm still being sanctified. I know you are too. And Isaiah was the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, yet he said, I'm the mouthpiece of God, but my mouth is filthy in your presence. Cleanse me. And church, when you hear the word of God being poured on you, that's what's happening. You're being purged as Isaiah was. Submit and rejoice to that this morning. It displays the glory of heaven in your life on earth. In heaven, if you go with me to Revelation, you can see another glimpse into what goes on there in Revelation 4. Revelation 4, 2. It says, At once, John's speaking here, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne... On each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Look what these creatures are doing. The first living creature like a lion and the second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, 
Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. He is giving glory to God in heaven, and we should be giving glory to God on earth because we can see in there and see what they're doing, and we can reflect that here on earth for God's glory. If you'll notice in this whole passage, everything is centered on God's throne. Everything is looking to God's throne. Everything is around God's throne. Everything is focusing on God. It is completely God-centered worship in heaven. And saints, it must be that way here. We're not here to entertain. We're not here to tell you stories. We are here to lift up the name of Jesus and exalt God in his glory now and from now on. That is our calling as a church. We are to be God-centered in our praise, focusing our minds and hearts on him when we gather together on earth. In heaven, that's not all we see. We also see in heaven that the Bible tells us that Jesus himself is high and lifted up. Jesus is exalted. Look with me at Philippians 2.5. This is what will happen in heaven, and this is what should happen in the church. This is what should happen when we gather this morning together in Jesus' name. Do you, do you recognize something very, very uh, significant uh, about this passage, this passage says that every knee is going to bow at the name of Jesus. And the name of Jesus that's spoken of here is that he is Lord, Kurios, God. And church, when we gather together and we say we gather together in Jesus' name, are we bowing like this? Are we exalting him? Because when we gather together as a church, that's what we're professing. Look what it says in 2.5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So why? Why do you do that? Verse 10 tells us, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Are we bowing to his lordship? If we're harboring sin in our heart, we're not bowing. If we're coming in here to be entertained, we're not bowing. If we're coming in here because it's a social event, we're not bowing. We come here to be, to be exposed to God's glory and to exalt Jesus by our submission to Him, by our bowing low before Him, by our worship. We worship a God, a God that's alive, as we'll talk about next week. He is not an idol. He is the living God. And we come in His name every week to give Him glory. That's why the church exists. That's why I love the church. We, with our lips, can declare the glory of Jesus when we gather together in His name. That's why we're here. And church, our worship services, to do that, they need to be reverent. We need to get a grasp on this. We gather in His name, in the, in the name of the Lord of Lords, in the name of Jesus, to honor Him. And so listen, I, I, I want you to understand something. There should be a holy hush when these services start. 
When we come before God in prayer, there should be quiet. There should be respect and reverence for that holy invocation. This is a holy time set apart to God, to worship a holy God, to exalt his name, and to come before his throne of grace and rejoice that he has not struck us dead, but has saved us. And we need to rejoice with reverence over that. I'll go further. I told you I was taking you through a pastoral walk here. There needs to be holy shouts of praise when we sing songs. I can't force this. I can't manipulate this, and neither can Brett nor Judy. And I don't want to do that. I want your praise to come from your heart, your heart that's been transformed and being exposed to the holiness of God and the glory of Jesus. But there needs to be a holy shout when we sing. All heaven should hear us because, folks, all heaven is hearing us. Most importantly, Jesus is listening when you sing to him. There should be holy awe when God speaks to you through preaching. You should be amazed. You have ears to hear him speak. That's a miracle. Let me read a quote to you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer noted that the word church to Protestants has the sound of something infinitely commonplace, more or less unimportant, something that does not make their heart beat faster, something with which a sense of boredom is so often associated. Church, we need to pray that that will never be our testimony as God blesses us in the future. If you love the church, you need to treat this gathering with reverence. God is here addressing us. God is to be praised through this gathering, this corporate worship. And you should also be reverent in your holy fellowship with one another outside of this church service. We should be constantly seeking to glorify God through our fellowship, through our love for one another, through our extension of grace to one another, love covering a multitude of sins, granting us union in Christ to praise His name because He has forgiven us, so therefore we can forgive one another. And then we can work together in unity to declare His glory with one voice here on earth and in heaven. Let me show you one passage that talks about that in Revelation 5, Revelation 5, 9. Oh, no. Nate's going to be right about something. There's one more verse after this. One more passage after this. We're going to glorify Jesus in my mistake, though. In 5.9, it says this, and they sang a new song saying, and this is in heaven, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. And notice this, you did that from every tribe and language and people and nation And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory, or an honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, 
To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Church, there in heaven, if you notice there in verse 9, there is holy fellowship. There is holy unity among the people of God who have been cleansed by Jesus' blood. They come together around the throne of God, whether they're from a different tribe or a different nation or a different skin color, they all come together to declare the worth of their Savior. And church, that's what we're called to do when we gather together corporately here in this church, in this gathering. That holy unity that we see in heaven should be reflected on earth in our church. In Romans 15, here is what we should be focused on when we come together in our worship. We worship God, we exalt Christ, and we rejoice in our fellowship. Verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 1, it says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance, that's a very key word, And through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you. It's it's reliance upon God's sovereign power here to give you endurance and encouragement. May he grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, that together, church, this is so important. You want to you live in holy fellowship for this reason. This is it. You benefit from it on secondary levels, but this is the main reason. That together you may with one voice magnify, glorify, exalt, exalt, whatever you want to put there. There It says, with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Wow, that's big. He has welcomed you for the glory of God. That's what happens when we come together. We come together in the hope of what God has done to join us. We come together to rejoice in our fellowship, and we come together primarily to praise God with one voice, a voice of forgiven sinners who are called now saints, set apart for God's glory on the earth. See, what I want you to understand this morning is we as a church, as a local church, but as the church universal even, we gather together corporately at times so that we, we can partake of the same things that the residents of heaven are partaking of. We come together so that we can actually sing with all the saints in glory. That's what's happening when we come together to hear God's word and respond to it. We are being a part of a holy convocation of saints we are brought together with the ones who have went before us and the ones who will follow after us. And I pray that you love the church as a result of this. I pray that you love the church more now than you did an hour and a half ago. And I pray that you'll love the church more tomorrow than you do today. Because the church is God's gift to you. And you're God's gift to me. And and I love you. And I care about each and every one of you and your kids, as does Nate. And we want to serve you, and we want to help you get a proper and biblical view of Jesus' church. 
And understand, he wants a church that is united in love and doctrine. And we need to keep those two connected together, bound together by God's grace. Let's pray that we do that. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your saints. I thank you for the church. We are in need of your constant cleansing and grace to get us through difficulties, to help us stand firm in the faith when we are attacked, when we're persecuted for our trust in you. But we know that you will be glorified as the church perseveres through the power of your spirit and through the illumination of your word. And I pray that we would be faithful witnesses as a church here and that you would bless us with many more years of ministry in this area. And I pray that you would be glorified today in Jesus' name. Amen.
Life to me, life to me. When I am falling, you are life to me. When I am broken, you are life to me. When I am empty, you are life to me. Your life to me, your life to me.